And this is uh, from the book of Deuteronomy, which are instructions to God's people as they prepare to enter into the land. And as we come to Deuteronomy 26, we, we find God's instructions on the tithe, the offering, and how they are to bring it and what they are to confess as they do. And so let us read together. Uh, please give your attention uh, to God's word. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today... To the Lord your God, that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down to e- into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid us on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the wit and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. And then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. And now uh, turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 20. Uh, we're going to read, uh, at this point, just the last three verses of Luke 20. Um, And then a little while later, we'll read the first four verses of chapter 21. But first, chapter 20, verses 45 through 47. And in the hearing of all the people, he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Uh, This ends the reading of God's word at this time. Let us ask his blessing uh, on our time in it. Our most gracious Lord, our hearts are indeed prone to wander. Our minds are slow to understand. 
We are not by nature people of your word. And so we ask that you would be among us and that you would speak to our hearts and that you would illumine our minds, that you would give us ears to hear this, your most holy truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin our time in God's Word this morning, I have two questions I want to ask you to get us started. And the first is simply this. Who in the Bible, other than Jesus, that's got to be the key there, other than Jesus, who in the Bible would you most like to be, who would you most want to be like? Um, I know some of the typical answers. I think, you know, the intellectuals, they all want to be like Moses or Paul and think deep thoughts. Uh, the adventurers usually want to be uh, somebody more exciting, maybe Peter or, or David or maybe Elijah or, or one of the judges, like Ehud. He's my favorite of the judges. I think women often think of some of the women in the Bible, Ruth or Esther or the unnamed woman of Proverbs 31. But what about you? Who would you choose? And who do you think Jesus would encourage you to emulate? If you got to say, Jesus, who, should, who do you want me to be like? It's an interesting question. Um, and I don't think he leaves us without any guidance. In fact, I think our passage today has one possible option for us. It's someone who lives as if she really believes in the resurrection. That, that the life uh, in this world is not all there is. Uh, someone who is, is willing to let go of what cannot last in order to take hold of what cannot fade. Someone like the nameless widow in our passage that we'll read about in just a few minutes whom we will one day have the privilege of meeting when we enter into heaven. That's the first question. Who in the Bible, other than Jesus, would you most want to be like? And my second question is this. How does your life... How does your life reflect your belief in the resurrection? Uh... I'm assuming that if you're here, if you're uh, a part of the church, that you believe in the resurrection. We talked about it last week. We, we saw that, that interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees and how the Sadducees uh, denied the resurrection and how Jesus just jumps all over the Bible just so that the entire Bible not, not only assumes the resurrection but, but points to the resurrection uh, and, and that confidence that this life is not all there is but there, there is life after death. There is an eternity that we need to keep in mind. Hopefully you agree. Hopefully you believe in the resurrection. But how does that belief affect how you live? If someone looked at your life and never heard what you said, would they say that's a person that believes in the resurrection? How would they know? And I think this is what our passage is trying to drive home. If you you truly believe in the resurrection, it will be reflected by you holding on to the riches of this world lightly. 
If you truly believe in the resurrection, that will show itself by by you not holding on too tightly to the things and the riches of this world. And as we look at Jesus' warning about the scribes and his comment that we'll see in a couple minutes about the widow who, who gives just a few copper coins, we want to remember our context. Last week we, we saw that episode with the Sadducees, and as I said earlier, they denied the resurrection. They believed that this life was all there was. And Jesus didn't just defend the reality of the resurrection. He drew out the consequences of it for their future. That they would one day have to bow to the very one they are antagonizing that day. And continuing that issue, uh, Jesus is now going to drive home how it will affect our day-to-day lives. And that's what we're going to see. And there's, there's another context we want to remember as well. All of these conversations that, that we've been looking at for the last few months and in, in, in these last few chapters uh, of the book of Luke, uh, the, the interactions with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and others, they've all been happening either inside or right outside the temple. But they are on the temple mount. They are right there uh, in the temple. We saw Jesus cleanse the temple. We, we saw uh, him teach in the temple. We've seen all these interactions. And and the temple is the most significant and important building in Israel because it is where God meets with his people. It's where his presence is manifest among his people. And it's there that Jesus is rendering judgments. And, And the point is this. Jesus is at home in the temple. Jesus has authority in the temple. Jesus is the Lord of the temple. God's presence, his judgments, are Jesus' home turf. That's his domain. And what we see taking place here is a foretaste of the last day when we all stand in the presence of our God and we hear his judgments. And it's in this context that that Jesus speaks to his disciples, but we're told loud enough so that everyone around him can hear. You know how that is. When somebody says something to this person meant for that person. And he warns them to beware of the scribes. Now, the scribes, they're these experts in in the law, in the scriptures. They're leaders in the church. They are pious, admired. And the last thing anybody expects Jesus to do is warn them uh, uh, about the scribes. What they expect is an admonition. Why aren't you guys more like the scribes? Look at them. They have scripture memorized, they're they're obedient, they're always here, they dress respectfully. That's what they're expecting. But Jesus says, no, you need to beware of them. So what is it? What concerns him? Why the warning? It's how they treated others. They always sought the place of honor. The best seats. In fact, the original words here convey the idea of first. They they always wanted to be first. The best for themselves and whatever is left for everyone else. They wanted to be admired. They wanted to be recognized. 
seeing and heard and served. And they made, made great efforts, not just to follow all the commands of Scripture, but also to make sure that everybody else noticed. And Jesus says, it's all a pretense. It's, it's outward. It's, it's just for show. Even their prayers were for the sake of their reputation, not, not to commune with their God, but so everyone would think that they are something special. And to drive this home, he says in verse 47 that they were willing to devour widows' houses. And what he means is they didn't mind using widows on their way to the top. They didn't care who got hurt in the process. If they could get ahead by exploiting a widow, they wouldn't hesitate. And that should set off alarm bells because because widows had a special place in Israel. God made all these provisions in his law for widows. And chief among those was they were to be fed out of his portion, the offering that the Israelites brought to the temple. In a very real sense, the the widows of Israel were invited to dine at God's table. So they might know that they were loved and cared for and provided for by their God. God's attention was uniquely on the widows. In fact, mistreating them was was one of the most grievous sins you could commit in Israel. The, the, The prophets addressed this regularly. God wanted his people to have a heart for the widows because God had a heart for the widows. But more than that, God wanted his people to actually learn to see themselves in the widows. And to realize that we are all needy. We all need mercy. We all need God's rescue. That really without his provision, none of us has anything. The the widows were meant to be a mirror to Israel of who they were before God. And yet the Jesus says that the the scribes were devouring widows. Not serving them, but using them. And while it's sad, it's not shocking. There are so many examples throughout history in God's church of those who would use religion to gain power over others. It seems like the headlines are, are never lacking for material in this category, in this area. As we watch the church, scandals erupt all the time, and then we see televangelists who prey on kind and trusting widows warming their way into their hearts and their bank accounts. Those who seek to get rich, famous, or powerful through ministry are those who follow in the footsteps of the scribes against whom Jesus warns us in our passage. 
these scribes who, who smugly scoff at the Sadducees for denying the resurrection. We sit there and we look at them and, and we have to ask, okay, so you believe in the resurrection. But in what ways do your lives show any true belief that eternity, eternity awaits you and it is more important than this life? How does that conviction translate into how you live? Because it looks like you're living for the riches of this world and not the world to come. Their belief in the resurrection made no change in the way they lived. They, they live as if this life were all there was, as if the treasures of this world were more important than those of the world to come. And Jesus' judgment in verse 47 is, they will receive an abundance, but not of riches, of condemnation. Verse 47. And we can't miss the point of Jesus' warning because when he says to beware of the scribes, he's, he's saying that their hypocrisy, their, their disregard for how the resurrection should affect their lives should not be emulated in the lives of the congregation. He's not, he's not just warning leaders. He's warning the people not to get caught up in that kind of hypocrisy. He's moving from critiquing the leaders to warning the people against getting caught up in similar sins. And this is what he presses home in the next four verses. I just want to read the first four verses of chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering boxes. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more in than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So as as Jesus is warning his disciples about the scribes, he he looks up and and, and standing just outside the temple, people are coming and going. And and twice we're told in our passage that he saw something. The, The people listening to him are probably oblivious to what's going on around them, but he isn't. This is his temple, and nothing going on there escapes his notice. And the first thing he sees are are those who are rich and wealthy and prominent, and they're giving out of their abundance. They're wealthy, they're successful. But they're not without religious conviction. It's not like these are the godless uh, 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 of the society. They're they're doing their religious duties. They're, They're bringing their offerings. They're paying their tithe. But what Jesus sees is merely outward formality. It's it's obligation. It's not devotion. It's it's duty. Not delight. It's conformity to the law, but, but not to the cross. There's no sacrifice in what they're doing. Their hearts are, are disengaged from their actions. There's no deeper thought about what they're doing and, and how they're meant to reflect the, the very sacrificial love of God. How their gifts are meant to be a confession that, that of their confidence that this life is not all there is. And so they can let go of their riches, that, that, that their inheritance lies stored up in heaven. 
as it is, they're so comfortable, they're so wealthy, they won't even notice what's missing because they'll have plenty left over. And then Jesus sees a widow. This is not the first time we've seen a widow in the book of Luke. It's not even the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth. In Luke, uh, widows keep coming up over and over. And they do one of two things in Luke's gospel. They either persistently seek relief and restoration. Or they receive the reward of resurrection. Uh, the first widow we saw was in chapter 2. It was a woman named Anna who, who had been a widow for many years and who spent uh, her life at the temple ministering, we're told, to those who were seeking the redemption of Israel. A woman longing for restoration, longing for rescue. And she's mirrored, isn't she, in that parable of the persistent widow who, who we see in Luke 18 constantly coming before the judge who's receiving affliction and oppression and she's looking for justice. She's looking for restoration. She's looking to be made whole. And in between those two episodes, two other widows are mentioned. The widow of Zarephath and the widow in a little town called Nain, both of whom received their sons back from the dead in resurrection. In fact, the very, the very designation widow is, is a necessary reference to death. It's a reminder that their lives have been deeply affected by death, that they're seeking restoration, hoping for resurrection. And so it's no surprise that, that Jesus' discussion with the Sadducees about resurrection revolves around what? A scenario with a widow. Widows, then, are the emblem of those who live with the reality of death, but do so with hope and a view to the resurrection. They embody what all of us are supposed to be in this world. And so it's no surprise that that Jesus draws our attention to a widow as he looks at the temple. And as she walks up to the temple, she drops in two small copper coins, the equivalent to about a penny, She leaves them in the offering, shuffles off, and almost no one notices her. Almost (laughs) no one. Nothing escapes Jesus' notice. This is his temple, and he sees all. And for most, a penny makes no difference. A lot of us, if we see a penny on the ground, we'll just keep walking. But not this widow. This is all she has. She will notice its absence. It will be felt. But she's driven by something deeper. She's she's driven by a confidence that her life is more than what she possesses. She's confident that her hope is in the resurrection. And she's able to hold on to the treasures of this world loosely. She doesn't so much experience the resurrection in our passage as much as she lives in light of it. She understands her God's sacrificial love towards her and in an act of worship, she reflects that back to him. And that's why, that's why gifts are brought to the temple. 
As we read in, in Deuteronomy 26, they are an act of worship. They are a confession that it's not the things of this life that define us. Our offerings are, or, or at least supposed to be, an act of confidence in the resurrection. That our treasure is stored up in heaven. We have a way, don't we, of, of turning our offerings into something more like a tax or, or an obligation, a duty, mere conformity to the law. When you view your gifts that way, they are so easy to remove from the context of worship. But when you understand that that your gifts are a reflection of Jesus' sacrificial love for you, when when you see it as a confession that your treasure, your inheritance is, is in heaven... When you see it in this way, you will see why God meant for our gifts to take place in the context of worship. This widow is, is, is a reminder to us that our gifts are meant to be expressions of who we are. That we are children of heaven and therefore sojourners and aliens in this world. That we are children of the resurrection. And Jesus sees this widow and he delights. That penny that she puts in the offering means the world to Jesus. I think parents understand this. When children bring gifts to their parents, they're they're not impressed with how much their kids spend, they're impressed with the heart of the child. The person who brings a large sum thinking that that he's doing God a favor doesn't get it. Because he thinks he's helping God rather than thanking God. He thinks God is needy rather than confessing that he is. And, And those are the gifts that God finds repugnant. The one who brings a gift before the Lord and says, thank you is a delight in his God's eyes. You see, this passage addresses two temptations for us. One is to think that because you give more than others, you are more important, more essential, and that God is impressed with you. And more than that, possibly, that God, or at least the church, owes you something, as if giving gifts was an act of trading favors. That is the way of the scribes. And Jesus says, beware, they will receive an abundance of condemnation. But I think there's another temptation that that this passage uh, can address. And that's to think that if you can't do much, there's no point in doing anything. Things are tough, money's tight... If anything, all you would be able to give is a few cents or a couple dollars. Why bother until you're able to do something really significant? And this passage comes and tells you not only to go ahead and bring those few cents, 
but that Jesus sees it and he delights in it. In other words, this passage reminds you that you are not invisible, that you are not unloved, that you are not insignificant, and that when you walk by faith in that way, you are living like a child of heaven, like you are living like in light of the resurrection. And so let's end where we began. Who in the Bible, other than Jesus, would you most like to be like? And how does the resurrection affect how you live? My hope is that you would see in this widow an example worthy of following. That she might be a strong contender for whom you'd like to be uh, like. What is a leader? Is it someone with a title? Or is it someone that, that God says is worthy of following? Whom does God want you to follow in this passage? It's not the scribes. They had titles. It's not the rich. They had a lot of money. It's the widow. And which one will you meet in heaven? It's the one who lived life in this world in light of the next. One day we are all going to have the privilege of meeting this widow. Because as poor as she was in this world, today she is experiencing restoration, renewal, and resurrection in the presence of her Savior. What a beautiful reminder. Where else could we possibly end such a reminder than at God's table? The Lord's table reminds us of the very things we've heard today. And I want to just kind of accent a couple truths. The first is that the Lord's table is and always has been for the needy, for the widows and the orphans. If you can't come to this table as one who understands your own need, then you shouldn't be here. We come as those who are needy and we find at this table a gracious God who supplies to us out of his riches, out of his abundance. And so in other words, we all come to this table confessing that we spiritually are widows and orphans. And as we do, we find a God who knows us and loves us no matter how small and insignificant we feel. He sees us, and he knows us, and he delights in us. And he says, come, I've reserved a spot at my table just for you. Sup with me. But this table also reminds us of a second truth, and it's this. That something greater awaits. Uh, we, We have before us little crumbs of bread, little thimbles of wine. And that's by design. The Bible tells us this isn't to fill your bellies. If you're hungry, eat at home. (laughs) I love that. 
The meagerness of this meal is meant to remind us that this world cannot satisfy all our needs. This world can't be our home. That that we await something greater. The first thing we're going to do when we get to heaven, we're told, is sit down at a banquet feast that is so abundant we can't imagine. And so as we partake of this meal, we are confessing our hope in the resurrection and and that this is not the time of abundance, but that will be ours in the future. And so this meal calls us to to resurrection living, to live our lives of sacrifice, reflecting the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross, confident that the day of renewal and restoration and resurrection is coming. That if you truly believe in the resurrection, it will be reflected by, by your holding on to, to the riches of this world loosely. And so we come and we take hold of Jesus. As surely as we hold the bread and we hold the wine, we confess that Jesus is ours and we are his. And So I'd like to ask uh, Pastor Isaac to come forward as we prepare to receive uh, the Lord's Supper today. Please join me in prayer. Our gracious Savior, you who know our plight, our affliction, and our longing, we thank you that you hear us when we cry. We thank you that the days of mourning and fasting will not last forever. That there is a day coming when we will dine with you and be with you. We thank you that you see us, that you know our plights and our needs our longing. We thank you that one day all those longings will be answered in fullness. Until that day, we ask that you would help us to live as those who believe in the resurrection, as children of heaven, awaiting the restoration of your people. Teach us to hold on to the things of this life loosely, to give generously, to to live sacrificially. These things we ask, we long for, we beg for, because Jesus has done all these things for us. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.